I'm built to talk on uh, American society and how cinema reflects it. This, I'll, I'll do a lot of reading for this because I'm not sure you've ever heard things like this. If you're bewildered, you can stop me and we can talk about it. I will publish this lecture somewhere so that they're available online if you're interested more, if you think there's anything to this. So my lecture today may seem strange to you. I don't have much by way of preparatory remarks except to say that cinema properly understood is the self-understanding of a society. It comprises several elements, individual and corporate. Taste, popular phenomena, prestige, and also great achievements. It is at once all American and almost universally opposed in America. Cinema is a part of civilization in the sense that it is the attempt to think through and therefore to educate Americans about what it means to be a human being. But it retains certain elements of barbarism, of fondness for images, you could call it. Cinema is remarkably democratic in that it shows us the bodies of human beings and the recognition of them carries important moral and intellectual consequences. On the other hand, it is very aristocratic in that it privileges stories which are impressive by reason of being unusual. We generally look for great beauty or great power or great achievements in the stories to which we pay attention, as opposed to our own everyday affairs. And finally, cinema produces inevitably celebrities. And that's the most obvious form of inequality in America. Cinema today is what books used to be. It is a form of poetry. It is a form of poetry of our times and society, but it's not the first. Books used to do the, this work, and, and that's how you should understand cinema and all poetry, by the work that it does. What is it characteristically supposed to do? And what poetry is defined by is a concern with the wholeness of action and therefore of human life. This is not to say that the highest purpose of cinema is its only purpose. I start with the highest purpose because it is needful to do so now. I will remind you of a saying of Tocqueville's that in de democratic times, poetry in a certain sense decays. A concern for the human as common or typical replaces or dampens an interest in grandeur in the epic or the splendid. The greatest things somehow slip from view without our noticing it. So what is typical of our situation is that cinema has overrun our lives while at the same time its every claim to consideration is in fact collapsing. In this generation music videos, television, internet-based series long or short and even advertising have gradually taken on the polish of cinema. They have taken talent from cinema and even the feel of cinema. Come to think of it, computer games are full of it too, whether it's cinematic events or a new form of animation whose realism is essentially derivative and imitative of cinema. Maybe graphic novels, there sometimes you are immune to the cinematic effect, to that form of experience. But not always, of course. And we're not talking about a glorious future for cinema here. There is no conquest in this. And it's not even clear that cinema has a future because the, it is faced with new technologies that can connect computer animation with digital recording on phones and the peculiarly half-real actions which our internet-connected screens make possible. Cinema used to require a rest. You were there in the darkness and 
your only choice was to walk in or at some point walk out. This has been done away with by the screens that give us the illusion that we're in control while destroying our ability to have attention. And now, of course, should America be faced with a new social revolution, like say what the 60s did, just about everything you're going to hear here today will be rendered quaint and obsolete, unless by accident some kind of theoretical insight works its way through what I have to say to you. I justify the insistence on the greatness of cinema, partly to explain why it is so imitated in so many other media, but partly to explain something about American society. Uh, I should also say that my statements are meant to hold true both for what is typical and for what is exceptional. They are supposed to explain what the greatness of American cinema is, but also how it works in a routine way, including nowadays. I'll make more abstract remarks at first, and then I will give you a long example about the movie business. And so I, I, I want this to mean that whatever the next form of poetry turns out to be with new media, it's going to have to be justified in the same terms and it's going to have to be understood by the same criteria. And uh, that's because ultimately you cannot have civilization without poetry. Some way of reflecting on, on the humanity as we experience it is inevitable. Now, philosophically, we say that we come to understand things in terms of their being and their power, and the two are different. The power of cinema is to teach justice, ultimately, in both its moral and intellectual components. Who can look at a few favored American films and not learn what Americans think of justice? Who can find many favored films, on the other hand, which break away from the American opinion concerning justice? Americans going to the movies know what they want and they expect to get it. They want to see characters get what they deserve and they have strong opinions about what that is. Now, so much for society. Let us turn briefly to man as an individual. As a matter of fact, we are curious animals. Curiosity is one of the lesser vices, but it is what is going to get us to the movies, that or boredom and they're not always distinguishable. <laughs> but it is also true that we have recourse to stories because we are dissatisfied in an essential way, both with our own experiences, each of us is a private man, and with the abstract statements that dominate our public life. Each one of us may abandon some of his dignity for the sake of believing what studies show, but that authority does not carry over into the secret councils of our hearts. There, other things reveal themselves, which lead us to the movies rather than to dedicate ourselves to scientific control for a successful life, for example. Our lives are massively deficient when it comes to being reasonable. Poetry is what deals with our deficiencies of reason. We usually find it easier to tell a story about something than to define it. We do not achieve that kind of clarity that's supposed to be theoretical in, in, in the common run of things. On the other hand, poetry also gives a remarkable power to our reason because it defies categories and classifications by which we usually reason about our affairs. Poetry alone makes it possible to begin to wonder about what we think about things and why. We see the way in which we see things on a screen and that makes it possible to wonder about it, to be interested in it while being detached in a certain way. That is, I guess, as close to theory as we come in our common experience reflecting on how things appear to us. That is what the movies do. That is the beginning point for philosophy, although it is not itself philosophy. And it is of great importance for all of us now because it takes our human perspective seriously instead of replacing it with some kind of public or theoretic 
authoritative perspective. We do not merely see ourselves at the movies. As I said, we see the way we see as human beings. Movies are always justifying our perspective. They are always from the point of view of human beings. Now, as I was wrapping up my notes on these lectures a few days ago, Professor Harmon asked me, how do I want to title it? Should I call it Reflections on Society or Reflections of Society? And uh, it's not as rare as you might think to, to hit upon an important philosophical question by way of a preposition that's in question. And I decided to go with Reflections of Society, partly for because that's my opinion of society in America, but partly because this is how being human works. Reflections of society starts from the <coughs> basics of imitation. What you see on the screen is what the movie makers saw looking around America. Now, this, however, could mean two different things, being that no movie can reflect America as a whole. American movie makers might offer Americans the images they think will please them. They see what Americans approve and are governed in their works by that. This would mean that America gives uh, itself a cinema by way of self-flattery, a barely concealed form of self-congratulation in which every theater-going experience is a thinly disguised awards ceremony. We are all the winners. <laughs> There's more than a little truth to that. But uh, you have to ask yourself, do people leave the theaters of the great nation in a soul-searching mood, chastened somewhat by the experience? Or on the other hand, do they come out a little smug, even a little self-important? Now, on the other hand, you could have imitation as reflection in another mode. In literature, we used to call this realism or naturalism, an impious, immoderate staring at ugliness and misery to chasten the bourgeois materialism of modern society. That would not be fun cinema. Even in America, this paradise, there is misery and suffering, and that could be reflected in the movies instead of the fun stuff. It's not unheard of, but it is very rare. Further, it's been rare in every decade except the 70s, and the vaguely suicidal public mood of America in that time suggests that there is more than a little that's questionable about this fascination with ugliness. Now, so far, I've considered reflection in the sense of imitation, reproduction of things as images, but only from the point of view of art, that is assuming a guiding intention. But you could also consider reflection as involuntary. In obvious ways, movies do reflect the times. Consider the American love of factual reproduction. Now that we're undergoing 80s nostalgia, images that are supposed to evoke that time have to get many details right. Clothing, interior decoration, architecture, opinions, and mannerisms of speech. The private and the public things have to be imitated in a persuasive way. In America, that's what is meant by realism. But how do the craftsmen in Hollywood craft these counterfeit worlds? They look at images from those times. Aside from the news, that means looking at the images produced by the various imitative arts, which involuntarily reflected the look of their respective eras, with or without meaning. We do not sense time. What we sense is change. The changes we become aware in how people act and, and how the, they, they act upon the world. And my remark there about the news is not accidental. The news gets old really fast. And then it's only worth anything for documentary purposes. 
images of objects become themselves the raw matter of the imagination of generations yet to come. Facts are relegated to mere footage. But it's not clear that cinema is any different. It's just another form of testimonial, it might seem, in a way more honest than the news, because it tells us truly what people hoped and what they feared. But is it worth, in that sense, anything beyond the attention it attracts in its own time? That is the danger we face when we try to be relevant, to speak urgently to the urgencies of the time. Nothing gets older faster than breaking news. Hence the need for another kind of reflection, reflection on society rather than merely of it. Realism in the sense of realistic imitation should be in the service of another form of realism. Realism about what America is, about who Americans are, and how they live their lives and why. This is nothing against good or faithful imitations. After all, stories are always about particular people in particular circumstances, so getting those things right, making them plausible, will always be important. But if we, all we have is the facts about this particular story or that particular person, then we're in trouble. We have already learned as modern men that the effectual truth of individuality or individual uniqueness is anonymity. Celebrity culture is the spirited reaction to a society where nobody thinks they matter. To then add to this very serious problem, the further problem that the details in a movie are all made up, they are fiction rather than fact, is to say that we have nothing at all to offer. The tendency to take that for granted is visible everywhere around you in the lack of attention to detail and absence of analysis when it comes to talking about movies. Reason has been abandoned because it was believed not to have anything worthwhile to offer. You may have recognized certain important facts of about American society already. A reliance on facts, a remarkable attention to detail, especially detail of the technical variety. A love of novelty, a lively interest in making man and the future transparent. This should suggest that the movies are in fact a very important thing, however trivial the word entertainment makes it seem. But cinema in our times does not allow, for the most part, for reflections on American society to emerge. This is a crisis whose magnitude is difficult to explain because of its ubiquity. Everyone lives out in his own person this crisis. Few sense that it is a shared crisis. Sometimes even the suggestion that is shared is met with a spirited answer in hostility to the idea that one's restlessness is not one's own, but merely a social fact. Nobody has found a way to bring people together in order to fix this problem. Even though Americans are more and more turning to their screens, which means ultimately to cinema, to complete stories. It is my purpose in this lecture to explain the character of this crisis and its current form. Now, to do this, I will like, try to explain what the role of cinema is in American life. The place of cinema in American life should be understood by the notorious gap in American society, something wide open in between personal, private experiences, which are particular to each one of us and interesting mostly to ourselves. And on the other hand, a public debate on, or a public discourse which is dominated by abstractions. Tocqueville famously said that Americans are uniquely given to general ideas. Whenever doubt should arise about anything, a principle will be stated with godlike certainty. What lies in between the abstract or universal and the personal or particular is judgment. Judgment in both common senses of the word is frowned upon in America. Obviously, moral judgment is frowned upon because it is a form of discrimination, and it is also the ground and mold of discrimination. It odors of inequality. 
as he who judges necessarily sets himself the superior of he whom he judges. But judgment offends not merely against equality, it also offends against independence or individualism. Now you will notice if you pay attention to your fellow Americans that they spontaneously desire to raise an individual objection to just about any general statement in order to ruin the credibility of that statement. In America, every word for generality becomes suspect. Think merely of the scientific word stereotype, which is not something anyone would say about his own way of thinking or mode of argument. The sacred rage against general rules is the intellectual correlative of the moral problem of judgment. There's a kind of heroism in Americans that leads them to fight off the claims of the intellect so that their freedom or unpredictability may be saved, may remain intact. The argument against judgment is that it traps people's individuality in human types which are available to the intellect in abstraction from any experience or moral commitment. Each one wants to retain his essential mysteriousness, and that means practically his opacity to the scrutiny of reason. This is politically salutary, furthermore. A people without such an aggressive rejection of reason would be easily tyrannized with their own consent. But it also creates a serious problem. In America, taste is impossible publicly to distinguish from prejudice. Judgment, however, requires a ground that is more amenable to the intellect than inclination, that is less shifting than mere preference, and that is more social, essentially, than is habit. So then taste would be the mysterious way in which conversation becomes possible that is neither as particular as one's experience nor as abstract as universal statements. Taste is formed, however, not by cinema but by music. I recommend to you the effort to explain your taste in music. You may find the failure humiliating, which is a chance you'll have to take. But if you allow the word, I will put it this way, it is perplexing. I will not attack anyone's particular taste, but I will point out the problem with taste in America. On the one hand, every American is rather proud of his own taste, at least because it's his possession. Now, not everyone shows off his taste, but who will suffer it to be slighted? But how can taste be personal or individual in a country where there are massively popular successes in music? There is no way to say enthusiasm for popular music is less genuine than enthusiasm for obscure music. It would seem to be part of human vanity or self-flattery that we can be proud of our individuality even as we affirm and experience our sameness together. <laughs> On the other hand, the more Americans stand up for this taste publicly, from t-shirts to books, the less they experience the almost inexpressible or non-rational character of love of music. Conversation about music is rare, therefore. First, because it is very hard to talk about it intelligently. Secondly, because people are ferocious in their defense of their own loves. Americans agree and disagree about music at the top of their lungs, but that is not conversation. <laughs> Professions of love and hatred are ubiquitous, especially on social media, but it is generally conceded that no disagreement can be reasonable, taste being a subjective thing, but not universal, and therefore nothing to share. The collapse of conversation then is premised on this most peculiar opinion. Americans, when it comes to their hatreds, if not their loves, have repealed the law of contradiction. <laughs> the farthest thing removed from the deeply felt, if inexpressible, character of love of music or hatred of it is politics. Here, too, Americans are loud and proud. In a spontaneous way, their loyalties and outrage are voiced 
in a way that makes conversation, again, impossible. This is because of the peculiar combination of justice and self-interest that dominates the American mind when it comes to public life. On the one hand, Americans make a profession of justice indefatigably. They will always have a principled statement to offer, free of uncertainty or misgivings. On the other hand, they take disagreement on principle to be a near impossibility, a kind of mythic animal. Therefore, the press Americans love best, on the one hand, confirms their every prejudice to be a show of righteous outrage, and on the other hand, proves for their money's worth that anyone who disagrees with them is corrupt, malevolent, or morally incompetent. To conclude, the American taste for hysteria and enthusiasm in politics, for superlatives, for the worst accusations and the most implausible suspicions, is also part of the freedom of a free people. It must at some level be defended, but it makes political conversation almost impossible. Americans seek refuge, nevertheless, from the endless anger of disputation and the appurtenant fear of being in the wrong. They give themselves over to science, the safe haven of knowledge in the stormy seas of opinion the opportunity in the chaos. Policy expertise is plentiful in America, and people then use it also for their partisan purposes to silence or to awe their interlocutors. In between the two private musical tastes and the two public abstractions of politics, cinema provides Americans with an endless chance to gossip. Because movies have stories everyone can follow, they are not as obscure as the other things. Because people invest their human dignity in the story, they take pleasure or offense at the endings of movies, with respect to their wishes and to their judgment as to the plausibility of the endings. Movies are therefore the ideal place in America for lively disagreement and discovery. They are held to be objects of debate, unlike the music, but not for the purposes of partisan victory, unlike the politics. Perhaps the lack of movies about music and politics is itself testimony to the way in which the movies are the commons of America. After all, books about music and politics of which there are endless numbers, appeal to very small audiences of admirers and basically function as cults. There are not many books about movies, however, because people do not much respect opinionating. What Americans want primarily in talk about movies is recommendations that will lead to a pleasant viewing and then reminiscence about old pleasures that can replace the bother of watching them again. Movies are experienced, and they are experiences, but they are not objects of judgment, unfortunately. The taste formed for principled partisanship or unprincipled love of one's own is hard to change. One begins to suspect that Americans love movies precisely because they are not conversations. When one looks back to the great directors of old Hollywood, or even most celebrated actors these days, one notices that they are as silent as possible about their own judgment. A reputation for being an artist is dangerous with the people. It is snobbishly coveted, however, by the few who oppose prestige to popularity, though there are not many of those left in America. But both sides are pleased by anecdotes, because anecdotes give secret information about movies. Facts about movies are also liked, as all facts are liked. But thoughtfulness about the most superficial thing, the movies, is generally forbidden. So this, then, is the place of cinema in American life. Socially, it encourages judgment and opinionating but it fails most of the time to spur conversation. It educates the people, but only silently. Now I will get to the part of the talk about the movie business. I will try to show you how all of this emerges in a practical example. Now, the American box office seems to be growing exclusively on the strength of pricier tickets as fewer people go to the movies each year. 
fewer movies are made every year, at least if you're counting movies with any kind of broad release and that could have an appeal to the public. They don't all have to be showing in 4,000 theaters, but you'd expect them to show at least in 500. The number of studios and the number of sources for stories are also decreasing. Now, in the movie business, an idea is called intellectual property. In that sense, there is a minuscule oligarchy that sells what a massive democracy wants to buy. The view of America you get at the movies is concentrating, ignoring more and more of the country at the same time. So let us look at what it is that we buy, or rather buy into, because in our modern world we no longer have property, we only rent access to things. Today, cinema is dominated by three genres. Superhero movies, animations, which are mostly about cute animals and often about redeeming villains, and then teenage horrors with a happy ending, that is to say, political paranoia. These are replacements for, respectively, the action movies, the family movies, and the social criticism movies of a generation and two back. There are many changes to speak about so far as society is concerned. The audience for all of these stories, for example, is getting younger. And the knowledge of American society required to follow the movies is itself decreasing. Observations on life in America are constantly being replaced by symbols. Now, about these three types of story that I have mentioned, you can think about the shift from action movie to superhero. What has it meant, which it needn't have meant? It has meant throwing away the moral virtues alongside the blue-collar heroes. They have all been replaced by super-intellectual oligarchs. The shift from the family movies to animations has completed the tyranny of American children over their parents. You will see in these stories that the children are right and the parents are wrong, the ones are daring and the others are guilty. The absence of social boundaries is implicit already in the animation, which is abstract. What it abstracts from is any recognizable American milieu. That means abstracting from community to principle or more often to caricature. And that has affected the evacuation of parental authority from storytelling. In short, there is no punishment among cartoons. <laughs> Finally, the shift from social criticism to political paranoia, which is inflicted on adolescents. This has completed the disillusionment of artistic moralism. Post-war America has always had some kind of artistic pretension to shame the audience by showing American injustice. It's a kind of speaking truth to power. Mostly these were movies made by holier-than-thou liberals, but they were not all deluded or lacking in worth. Now, however, outrage at injustice has turned into hysteria disbelief of the reality of reality. If you want to know what Twitter would be if it were a real world. Any of these stories where young Americans are torn apart because of monstrous adults, that's what it would look like. That's the world of political paranoia. Now in social terms, this completes the separation between adults and children. This was once thematized, for example, in 80s vaguely romantic movies about misfit kids made by John Hughes. And uh, there is much to be said for those movies, at least nowadays, because their earnestness and their common sense recommend them for understanding the problems with how young people see America. This has all been replaced by the Marvel identity. The theme throughout is social decay, and it is best seen in the Marvel division of Disney. The moralism of these stories, always about liberating the young from the old, is a secret hope that society will fall apart so that those can, who can manage can ignore the majority with impunity and without a bad conscience. Excitement about the heroism implicit in technology 
and its liberating power is not a common good concern. It is essentially individualistic. The complaints involved in these stories, the problems of the plot, they always come down to saying that America isn't good enough. They always tend to resolve in the direction of individualism. They do not bind people, but sunder them. The secret wish of upward mobility embodied in these text stories is to abandon one's own community. Moralism then offers the added advantage of putting the blame on the community. It deserves abandonment. Heroism or achievement is somewhere else. We have got to go there to find it, but there is no coming back. An incapacity for love and friendship, which is typical of most of these superheroes, is seen as the springboard to achievement. The stories of political paranoia also do their part to complete America's age segregation, turning youth into victimhood and adulthood into cruelty and exploitation. Of course, I don't mean to say that America's baby boomers are not giving the millennials a raw deal. Far from it. But political paranoia is not, for that reason, any more plausible or any more reasonable. Now, I will suggest to you that the abstraction implicit in animation as a genre means the same thing. To put it theoretically, youth is the same as saying that there is no past. That's where freedom starts. I know that these genres never require or offer detailed or deep knowledge of any part of American society. The inability to take what matters to actual life seriously is therefore very important. All that is replaced by a search for meaning elsewhere. In the case of the superhero movies, two phenomena require attention. One is the belief that the only problems worth considering are essentially scientific problems. Even evil has come to be seen in the guise of science, like a puzzle with a solution. Tricky, surely, but not mysterious or inscrutable. The doings of scientific heroes, admittedly, you know, are about fighting evil, but not within the human heart. It is merely an alien invasion that has to be repelled. It's an accident, really, and you can fix it. The other phenomenon is the related fear that monsters are coming upon us. This is where the fascination with evil shows itself in superhero movies. And I fear that these stories have no way to deal with that fascination, which is real and constitutive to the human heart. There are dark passions in the soul, and they have always been and always will be acted out in story. But they are not thought through or educated. The ugly truth is that what you see is what you get, and we all know this. Nobody goes in all innocence to see yet another American metropolis, usually it's New York City, destroyed violently. Lives treated like mere matter to be robbed of their form. The only thing I can reasonably say in defense of these strange spectacles that are so strangely acceptable to most Americans is that there is no alternative now. No one dares to speak and no one feels responsible to speak to millennials, for example, about what 9-11 meant to America and where they fit into that politics. Disney, therefore, seems to be the future of American entertainment. It is also the best example I can summon of a corporation moving in many different ways toward what the media are actually supposed to achieve, to create a new identity for Americans. People do not merely watch Marvel movies. The stories themselves may not matter much, but what you could call the poetic effect of them, properly considered, is very important. I happen to have a very low opinion of most Marvel movies, but I have a very high opinion of their effectiveness. And to understand the Marvel effect on America, we have to put together a couple of things. The money involved in the venture, the willingness of consumers to sign up in their hearts years in advance, 
the introduction of advertising into the endings of movies themselves, which massively undercuts any dramatic effect a conclusion could or should have. The further marketing of the stories, always leading to some big revelation, endlessly deferred. Then the social phenomenon of celebration, admiration, and incessant gossiping and ugly remarks about the competition in this entire movie venture. Then the superlative epithets by which loyalty is pledged in the guise of expressing pleasure. Finally, the domination of Disney Marvel by Iron Man. This is an economic domination. This is a thematic domination. It is also a domination of mood. You will see in this the model of sarcastic, broken people turning from human concerns to vaguely paranoid or aspirational tech innovations or discoveries. And you can not always tell them apart. Is this paranoia or aspiration? That's what all the Avengers movies are about, self-inflicted self-destruction. Monstrous invasions perpetually get in the way of any humanity or introspection, and one begins to suspect that these nightmares are self-inflicted, that they are the self trying to dramatize and moralize the failure of acting like a human being should. This is the idealization of individualism, ultimately. Now, I have recently had the occasion to write about the new Spider-Man movie, which shows that young Americans finally have found the surrogate father they looked for unsuccessfully in Barack Obama. It turns out it's a sexier, wittier version of Steve Jobs, ultimately. That's who Iron Man is. And that's who gives you your gadgets, and they are your superpowers, and that's who gives you your costume, and that is your identity. That's who gives you access to the few people who matter in exchange for your loyalty. You can have a kind of membership that comes with contempt from people who are more important than you, but whom you are expected to support. And who is our new Spider-Man who used to be a moral Boy Scout city American who talks about great responsibility? He's a fanboy. It's, uh, it's OK because the superheroes approve of him. And so Spider-Man has no longer an origin story, because now instead he has a new origin. He has an origin that fits with loyalty to a particular corporation. That is his fountain origin. <laughs> Now, this may surprise you, but it really shouldn't, as the various institutions of America lose their reality, their legitimacy, their efficacy, or the respect of the public, Americans are turning more toward corporations. Why? Because that's where you learn who you are and what powers you can wield. Americans are increasingly tied together by networks rather than any other things. There is a relationship between evacuating reality from the lives of Americans and their moving toward fantasies to search for solutions or descriptions of their problems or ways to make them worse. And corporations are therefore reassuringly real and thriving and ordered. They can require loyalty and they can reward patience and moral investment. What else has a future in America? What long-term projects are there? As people get lonelier and feel more pushed around, what common experiences do Americans have to compete with the opening weekend of a blockbuster? Or the putting up for sale of a new gadget? That is the future, and it is real, tangible, now. That's the power, and it is at your command. Secretly, it ties you up to everybody else, and it feeds your desire to be known as who you are and loved for it. This desperate hope that is constantly disappointed is what drives social media. Everything turned when Americans were separated from their anonymity. Now, I'm old enough to remember when the internet was young enough to be dominated by adults who valued anonymity as part of privacy for good and for bad reasons. Now, this all changed, and when uh, people were offered in America first ways to put themselves on display, it turned out that's what they were always waiting for. 
You may not get right with God, but Facebook will offer you a chance to see others and be seen by them, not as through a glass darkly. <laughs> you can be justified by popularity or even a small-time celebrity. Now, I will not go on talking about corporations because that's beyond my object today. But understanding that movies are part of a corporate system of business that depends socially on loyalty and love, that is essential to understanding the changes in American society. Movies are just the most obvious example of how corporations create identities people feel comfortable with, excited about. They seek them out, embrace them, and continue in them. But of course, in the great economy that is America, there are many other stranger examples. Now, with Marvel, Americans get the breathtaking opportunity of getting in on the ground floor of a new business empire. Most of them will never see a dime for all the dollars they spend, but the intensity of the experience stretching forward into the future feels like greatness and therefore feels great. Americans who like Marvel can be happy in their hatred of DC comics and movies too. That's how real this feels to them. It is turning into a competitive spectator sport. Success in this case can be believed to be its own justification because everyone believes themselves to be in control of participating in this popular phenomena. Crazy as that seems viewed from the outside. People feel like they are both witnessing and making something great. They can be part of the majority opinion, even as they seem to themselves to be forming it or creating it. They can be together with everyone else while not feeling too derivative or imitative of, of anyone else. The massive inequality between the new gods and everyone else makes everyone else equal. I would not find it easy to give you examples, on the other hand, of experiences of citizenship that feel as real to the Marvel audience as Marvel phenomena do. And I do not want entirely to disdain this. There is a certain part of justice involved in the Marvel enterprise, and that is merit. It sells Americans the same illusion that Silicon Valley does. It is not an accident that they collude on technology and the tech future. To the many who are not plagued by disruptive ambitions, all it gives us is novelty and the vague reassurance that technological progress is happening. They feel that they deserve better than they have, but do not want to bring the moment to its crisis. This reassurance suffices to make people feel good about America. But to the few who are feverish with some kind of ambition, these enterprises give the illusion that you can earn your success, win your freedom from your fellow Americans who don't value you as they should. Moving apart from everyone else in that sense feels like an adventure, not like loneliness. It is attaining a certain superiority. New gods, or at least demigod heroes, are the idols here, forged and fashioned by science. I cannot stress enough that this view of America, in many ways tacitly accepted, is all about separating the productive who will make their future, that's what they produce, from most people who don't even deserve mention. Now, cinematically, Americans are treated like an admiring audience or collateral damage in these stories. This is the common understanding of progress by technology in our times, and it is deeply shameful. There is no honest public discussion of it, because there can be none for reasons of shame. However, intelligent people, educated people, people obsessed with tech and politics do talk about it, just out of earshot or the interest of the majority of the people. And most of the country really is behind the news and behind the times. So far as I know, nobody has taken it upon himself to come up with any public discourse to persuade Americans to stand up for their dignity. That would be a reflection on American society for the benefit of the public. 
We know how badly it is needed primarily by its absence. Now, to conclude my talk about Marvel, I've only talked so far about what everyone can see on screen, but a man of sense should also concern himself with what is left out of the picture. To speak briefly, superhero stories in this sense speak to the catastrophe of manliness and with it the dying away of friendship between men in America. Consider that at the same time that the dark fantasies of manliness of America's nerds have become the biggest box office draw in the land. Who would have thought that nerds would be the prophets of America? However, that's how it turned out. At the same time, the typically manly business of agonizing over the end of the world or inflicting it has become dominated by doe-eyed girls. Americans can hardly enjoy conspiracy thinking and political paranoia without involving underage girls at the center of all this. That is new and should be disturbing. <laughs> this fails to say anything worthwhile about being a woman in America, but it does invade the last precinct of manliness in public discourse. Now, I will close with two brief explanations of how genre itself involves reflections on American society. Partly this is because of my own recent work on horror movies, so that will be my first example. American horror comes down to two versions of an attack on progress, and in that sense horror is essentially a conservative genre. Now one genre of horror is Christian. Hitchcock did this best, and his many imitators in slasher films since John Carpenter, they're still doing it. These stories try to put together the universal and the particular in the following way. They start with a social setting that is very broad and designed to show what's happening with American freedom. This always is a ban the banal part of the movie, but it is the essential part of the movie. They then move to an individual story of the emergence of evil. How crazily implausible evil has become and how maddening, therefore, it is supposed to be to the characters, that should teach Americans that they didn't see it coming, to not have seen it in the setting of the story, to be unwilling out of good, respectable, middle-class American values to see evil in one's own heart and therefore in society, that is what leads to countenancing or even provoking monstrous consequences. Now, the tragic poet in this case resorts to shocking things, rightly called horror, on the assumption that nothing else will even get a hearing. This is what sophisticated writers like David Lynch want to teach, Neil LeBute, any number of them, all of whom are deeply unpopular. These are very sophisticated movie makers, but they are basically Christian moralists. They mean to remind Americans that you can stop believing in God, but you cannot stop believing in evil. Instead of providence, you will just get wrath. The alternative to Christian horror is scientific horror. America has great examples of this from a while back. Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft, and these more or less correspond to the great British insights offered by Mary Shelley in Frankenstein and Robert Louis Stevenson in uh, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now I will note in passing, as you recall, Frankenstein is about taking scientific control over life and Jekyll is about taking scientific control over good and evil. You will remember that these are the two fruit trees in the Garden of Eden, the fruit whereof is forbidden to man. That is the essential moral meaning of horror, even in its scientific version. These writers, they opposed this answer to the Victorian century of progress, or then the American century of progress. They are about the consequence of the scientific conquest of life. Scientific horror then is a way of thinking through the proposition that life is not providential. 
its history and anthropology work in this way. Man started from savage nature, created for himself an artificial civilization where he was safe. And then the power of artifice by which he made artificial civilization, science, liberated him and prepared him for a great future. But instead of a great future, what science, seeing things as they truly are, knowing the truth about life, what it really does is tell you that life is essentially horror. That is to say that life is striving, that being is striving, that war and chaos rather than peace and order dominate being as such. In short, that life is cannibalism. Ridley Scott showed this with Alien, which is almost a direct Lovecraft story. And he's doing more and more of it these days, so it seems like this market will never go away. And this should explain to you why the characters in horror stories face horrifying life forms that drive them insane. These people recognize them as they truly are without the masks of civilization. Their form and their integrity are violated because there is nothing sacred to life. Now, the decadence of horror is regrettable for that purpose, but what is there to be done about it? No other genre is such a reliable moneymaker. Of course it will be abused. You'd have to be Poe or Lovecraft these days to lose money on a horror. And now actors faced with the personal problem of the death of cinema often go in that direction, lending respectability or awards prestige to a genre that is still considered lowbrow. The movies are cheap. The audience seems to be inexhaustible because we are talking about young American men. No one else in America will tell people that evil is real, part of the human heart, and an experience. They will then go find out about evil, about the evil in themselves, in this way, through horror movies. You can say it's a pretty safe and fun way of experiencing evil, but that may be a problematic statement. But the problem is that instead of reflecting on the American mind and the predicament of our times, our horror movies now merely give a dubious kind of delight. And it is worth wondering why violence and ugliness are so interesting to people who basically live lives that are safe and boring. The other genre I will mention is officially dead and most recent entries in the genre declared that. We're talking about the romantic comedy. This was the primary film for women in America and the only chance for young women to learn publicly about love and how it fits into American society. Consider that popular music is far more educational for young men than women. And the movies, as I said, they're dominated by the fantasies of nerds. The purpose of romantic comedies as opposed to this was to gentle men's emotions and educate women's minds. The humor in the stories was often at the expense of men in order to flatter feminine shrewdness, which you could also call prudence. There is a somewhat immoral kind of intelligence involved in romantic comedies, and it was promoted as a genre by the identity, at least in the best romantic comedies, of the woman's fate or plot with the design of the story. Under guise of romance or sentimentality, seriousness about the dangers of love and the attraction of an unintelligent way of going about it were unfolded. They were a criticism, not a flattery, of sentimentality. This unfortunately encouraged genre exploitation because the lack of realism built into the romantic genre, it was supposed to be a concealment and, and at the same time a revelation of intelligence and design, but it turned out to also be a super successful way of doing business right up until it collapsed. And so gradually cynicism replaced idealism and it is not a surprise or it shouldn't be because it is a later fruit of the same plant. 
the last act in the tragedy of romantic comedies is that the writers themselves began to show an open hatred of men. And that just doesn't do anything to teach women about the precariousness of their social situation in America, however pleasing it would be to feminism. And that the romantic comedy itself is all American, we learn from Tocqueville. He did the, not bother to talk about the education of American boys, but did talk about the education of girls. He also noticed very publicly that young women in America are remarkably free in their conversation, especially with young men. The boys being less sophisticated or articulate, the girls could play with them in conversation. Flirting, in short, allowed young women to have fun without taking senseless risks. This is the method of the romantic comedy as well. American freedom without laws, however, dooms women, and the freedom of the women depends on civilization, which means that the women need to learn to protect civilization. Now, how this plays out in movies, I will explain in one simple example. The most versatile talent in old Hollywood is a man called Howard Hawks. He made tough movies, soft movies, fun movies, fearful movies, romantic comedies, westerns, noirs, you name it. As was the fashion for genius in that time, he even made a movie in Africa. He, he had directorial talent, which somehow eclipses everything else. And you can see this because he was able to make John Wayne look like great talent and Cary Grant as though it were the same thing. Now, the rule he observed in his movies is this. In comedies, the woman dominates the plot. In dramas, the man dominates the plot. And this is now no longer possible, of course, because it would humiliate people as well as bewilder them. American audiences feel their power the more they forget about great movie makers. If you wish to know why cinema reflects your society, it is because people control or own the movies. They do not wish to be shown things they do not find relatable, as is said, or characters with which to identify, as is also said. Great stories or great characters tend to offend them. But what else gives freedom to poetic genius? Well, it is not infrequent for an unattached person in America to feel humiliated or angered by the romantic attachment or public happiness of another. You may call that envy, but it goes further. Specifically in the case of movies, it is jealousy. Now, Aristotle teaches that the difference between envy and jealousy is that only the latter involves a sense of possession, a title in justice to property. To put that in more practical terms, envy does not, but jealousy does create crimes of passion. And this sentiment toward the movies makes people bristle at the eccentricity of greatness or its domineering tendencies. As we say in academia, you could say there is a tension between wanting to have things your way and wanting what is best. To conclude with the romantic comedies, Tocqueville expected that the women would be educating the men by their romantic selection. Men in America cannot marry by the authority of their politics or of their family, unlike in the, new wor in the old world and therefore they must woo in person. And that leaves them in a civilized situation where necessity does not press at the mercy of the women. But equality has overlapped itself and the new romantic comedies can no longer teach women how to deal with men or that that is their primary concern. This makes it impossible to reflect on American society in the way comic poets are wont to do. One would have to know the great differences between men and women. One would inevitably have to reach the only thing Americans dare not discuss, the relationship between the private and the public. Everyone's proud freedom is humiliated once that is broached. This then removes the intrigue and the venue for romantic comedy. All that is left is a set of conventions which are artfully arranged in the plot 
And that has been removed by the democratic revolution provoked by the baby boomers. Take merely of conversation, which is the life of romantic comedy, as of marriage. In their honesty, Americans are told both morally and scientifically that they need to communicate, to listen to each other, and to talk clearly, therefore. Well, women and men, even in America, have different ways of speaking. The one more direct, not to say crass, than the other. The advice of equal communication turns out to mean that women should sacrifice their reticence in direction or talent for hints. The men cannot be bothered to take a hint or pay attention or to make the effort, to say nothing of remembering or making elaborate romantic gestures. One could say that with the moral imagination, the erotic imagination too was stunted. These then are the outer reaches of American cinema, the extremes of tragedy and comedy. One is overdone in violence and the other has been abandoned. That shift towards anger rather than lust is itself evocative. Now what we now have, without any taste for irony, is sarcasm. If you want to see the opposite of sarcasm, you should see Whit Stillman movies. Their comedy is elegant. You get a, a view of American society that includes what's wrong from the point of view of pleasing love without insisting on ugliness. The rule, therefore, of romantic comedy is to remove evil from the picture and make tragedy seem like it is corrected, that it is a, a, a mistake, something that can be fixed. On the other hand, instead of horror, you could watch David Lynch movies, which give you a beautiful version of America that is at the same time monstrous. Each of the parts is factually correct, but they are put together in an implausible way to force Americans to face the question, is our society in some ways evil? Is evil possible in our society? Those are, I believe, the alternatives now. And that's the conclusion of my lecture. <laughs>